It's time once again for another episode of All That's Jazz, the podcast that explores everything in the world of jazz. And here now is your host, Alan Scott. Hello and welcome to another episode of All That's Jazz. Today, our guest is internationally recognized saxophonist, composer, band leader, Ellie DeGibri. His latest release is his ninth self-released album. It's called Henry and Rachel. It is a loving tribute and deeply personal recording for his parents. Ellie, thank you so much for joining us on All That's Jazz. Thank you, Alan. It's my pleasure and honor to be here. Oh, it's my pleasure. And I'd like to talk to you a little bit about your background, and then we'll move into the recording of Henry and Rachel, which uh, I think is probably one of the most exquisite pieces of music in a long time that I've heard. Thank you. Well, it's great to hear that you think that. You were originally born in Tel Aviv, and at some point in your life, you moved to the uh, United States. And I I believe a lot of that was the result of your being involved with Berklee College of Music. In in some way, yes. When I was, I guess, around 15, I, I already had this dream of becoming a jazz musician. And from that time, I I was just looking for opportunities to come to America, to to come to New York, uh, mainly. Mm -hmm. And um, we have a a great school in in Israel, which is called Rimon School of Music. It's um, the founders of the school are all graduates of Berklee College of Music. So they have a a great connection with, with Berklee. And so every year, I think till this day, representatives of Berkeley come to Israel and audition musicians' talent to, to come and, and, and study in Berkeley. And I already was uh, auditioning at 16. And obviously I was too young to, to come to, to the States, but they were waiting for me for two years. And uh, I had a, a very nice welcoming with a full scholarship to study there. That was uh, the first jump shot or uh, you know, way to, to, um, to leave Israel and, and come to the place where I was really you know, dreaming of studying this music that I fell in love with. And of course, yeah. this music, even though you're a saxophonist now, you didn't start out that way. You, you started out at a young age, what, seven, eight years old, playing the mandolin? Yes, uh, I was very, very young, and my mom uh, just uh, signed me into a conservatory, a music conservatory. But they were very determined to have uh, a mandolin player in their uh, school. So um, I, I really didn't want to play the mandolin, but it took me a couple of months, and I just I became infatuated with, with the instrument and I loved it and I played it for three years. And the only reason why I switched to the saxophone was because of this music that I heard, which was jazz, in one of the 
rehearsal rooms over there and I just fell in love with it and I said I want to understand and be able to what I call uh, you know I didn't know it was improvisation but for me it was like magic yeah I, I, wa- I wanted to become a magician of no I understood that they are just inventing new melodies out of thin air and I was like I want to do that mm. and that's how I switched to the festival. Well, you obviously do it well because you not only got a full scholarship to Berkeley College of Music, but then after that you went on a full scholarship to the Thelonious Monk Institute, and that was, right. I think, 1999, somewhere in that timeline? Yes, uh, 98, I think, and it was um, the second generation of the Thelonious Monk Institute, which is now called the Herbie Hancock Institute. Back then, it was located in Boston. So I heard about them auditioning new students for the new class, and I signed in and I got in. And that's also where you had your first association or encounter with Herbie Hancock anyway. Right. Uh, This is um, one of the greatest things that the monk is doing for their students uh, is they are taking the whole band on an um, educational tour, and the uh, guest honor of uh, our tour was Herbie Hancock. And I remember the first time we met, it was in Chile, in South America. And we were sound checking, and I had my eyes closed during sound check, and then I hear, you know, piano. We had our own pianos, but I, I hear that the piano sounds different. Mm-hmm. And I opened my eyes and all of a sudden I see Herbie Hancock right here. It's next to me. And, and I was looking at him and I was staring at him. And he just stopped and looked at me and he was like, what are you looking at? And I, <laughs> and I was like, I'm sorry. I, I, I was so embarrassed. And this was the first encounter with Herbie. But only a few days after his wife, Gigi, came to me and she said, you know, Herbie doesn't stop talking about you. And, and so it should be. Uh, and, and it's so funny that you mentioned that story, <laughs> uh, being in awe of him and why not? I mean, the guy is absolutely a legend in the music world. And, and the two of you hit it off, obviously, because I believe he invited you to play uh, with his ensemble. And you toured with him for, what, uh, maybe a year and a half, two years? Yes, uh, almost three years. And um, when I graduated from the Monk Institute, just a a few months before, I got a a phone call from his manager. I honestly did not expect it, even though I I realized that Herbie enjoyed and liked my playing. It was just like a fairy tale, like a Cinderella story. And and his manager calls me and he says, you know, Herbie really likes your playing and would like you to join his next project. Mm-hmm. And after I hung up the phone, I was in a hotel room and I was so happy. I jumped on my bed and I jumped so high that I um, had my head bumped into the, the ceiling. It was such an exciting and uh, unforgettable moment. Kind of uh, lends new meaning to the phrase of jump for joy. <laughs> yes, yes. And eventually, uh, it's my understanding that you moved to New York and then you formed your own group. 
and then became part of the uh, the Al Foster uh, Quartet as well. Right when I um, moved to New York and um, after the Herbie Hancock Sextet project was ending, I met uh, or I re-met with one of my friends and amazing pianist, Mr. Aaron Goldberg, uh, who told me that legendary Al Foster, drummer Al Foster, is looking for a new band and especially a new saxophonist. And um, he is having a show at Smoke Jazz Club in the Upper West in Manhattan, and that I should come and, and you know, sit in so he can hear my playing. So, I, of course, I, I took this opportunity and I took my saxophone and I came to the show. But uh, little that I knew, it was not only me, it was like uh, an army of saxophone players who came hmm. this, this uh, night because all of them wanted to uh, get the shot and get the opportunity to, to play with Al. And it was really frightening, but Al just kept inviting people it was like a live audition so we were all going on stage and uh, you know it's it's a funny story i just told you about how i closed my eyes and saw uh, herbie but this is a story that al tells me that this night he was he was closing his eyes while he was playing and he just heard the different saxophones there and he told me that when I came on stage and played, he had to open his eyes and, see, and, and look, who's, who's, who is this guy? Who is playing? And then he saw me. And then this is how I got the gig, and I played with, with Al for 10 years. Al is my musical father and um, parent and mentor. He uh, really shaped the way I play today and strong influence on ever since. Well, and there it was. He opened his eyes, and lo and behold, right in front of him was Ellie DeGibri. <laughs> yes, something so, like that. Well, you certainly had a healthy and happy career uh, in your musicianship uh, while you were in the United States. You produced a number of recordings, etc. But then eventually you moved back to your homeland of Israel. What prompted that move? And when was that, by the way? The move was in 2011. And um, honestly, even when I moved from Tel Aviv to uh, Boston, I, I wasn't like 100% uh, in peace with this decision. I made it, this decision and I w wanted to, to fly away because I had the urge to study this music that I loved so much from my uh, heroes and that, that was the, the only place that I could think of mm -hmm. but at the same time it was just like um, I don't know if, if you, you experience this sometimes when you have a plant that you put in a one place in, in the apartment and then for some reason you want to move it to another place or you take it from the roots and put it in a, in a different uh, container and then it just Sometimes it will just feel sick or like you will have to take care of it. Sometimes it will even die. Mm -hmm. And um, it was the same for me. I was so rooted uh, in, in, my, in Tel Aviv, in Israel, with the culture and with the language and with my friends. And, and uh, uh, of course, and mainly 
with my parents. I'm an only child. I, I was always uh, deeply connected and uh, I, I needed my parents to guide me and I still do, even at 44. And so when, when I moved, it was a shock for me. So I was always thinking and dreaming of, on, of the day that I will be able to move back without hurting my music. So I was lucky enough that the world has evolved so much and today you can live anywhere and do music and play and tour uh, and it doesn't really matter. So when I felt that this is the time and my parents uh, were starting to get sick and old, I, I knew that this is something that I have to do. So it was important to you, obviously, and I was going to ask that, that uh, I didn't know if part of that may have been for caring of your parents uh, or recognizing the fact that they were aging and it was important to spend time with them and spend quality time. This time is so precious with, uh, with our you know, parents, our immediate family, and it is also time that will never come back if you if you want to cherish it and want to be there to, to grab this time when they're gone you will never never be able to go back in time and have this one conversation with your dad one you know one one more information that you wanted so uh, i realized that at, ve at very early age and in the first moment that i I, I said, you know, okay, I, I've done so much in New York. This is the time that you need to spend with your parents. Mm -hmm. Well, and you had other pursuits as well besides connecting or reconnecting with your parents and being there for them. You were associated with the Red Sea Jazz Festival. You also, uh, I believe, were the head of the Jazz Studies Department at the Academy of Music and Dance at Hebrew University. Right. These are all projects that or like um, roles that I took when I came to Israel and I was trying to uh, do the best I can in the jazz scene, the very small but at the same time the very good or uh, vibrant scene that we have here in Israel. Mm -hmm. And so the Red Sea Jazz Festival is still the main and when I was a kid I, I went to, to see the, some of the best shows I've ever heard and seen in my life. So for me to, to become the artistic director of this great and prestigious festival was a, a very great honor. And the same goes for the, um, the Hebrew University. Being a, a, an educator, being a teacher is something that I feel is a, a great privilege for anyone who's pursuing this. Since 2011, I had so many students at my uh, class and to see them grow and to hear them play and become wonderful musicians and also to teach them something about life and like you said about being a good human being uh, and these are all things that I've learned from my parents and from my musical parents like I said like Al Foster, like Herbie Hancock, like the great Ron Carter, they all taught me how to be a good musician but even more a, a great person so this is what i've i want to do for my students and 
and I feel very, very honored and pleased to do this. Well, moving back to Israel is sounding more and more like the fact that not only did your professional career continue to flourish and develop you as a musician, as a composer, maybe an educator as well, but there was also a personal growth and development that continued by not only the association with your parents, but just some of your dedication and passion uh, for life itself. Right. Are you referring to some of the titles in the, on the CD? or? Uh... Uh, yes, uh, <laughs> for the CD itself and for the recording, because it's an important part of not only who and what you are, but it's also important that you decided to do a recording in tribute to your parents, Henry and Rachel, and... This is the first album that you've had since 2015. Am I correct on that? No. The last recording I had was Cliffhanging, and it was on uh, release, I believe, on uh, 2019. So after that recording, though, when did you come to either the realization or the, the focus on the fact that you wanted to do a tribute to your parents? So, as I said, I, I'm an only child, and uh, I was very connected with my parents. And also my father, Henry, he was much older than my mom. So he had me when he was 50 years old. So when I started this project, it was right around the time when he was diagnosed with cancer. And at the same time, my mom, who is 15 years younger than him, uh, she was uh, diagnosed with severe dementia and Parkinson's disease. Mm. So everything just came together, and it's a lot to deal with, especially when you're just the only one there to take care of them. Music for us musicians is the place where we can find sanity and where we can find treatment for our soul. Mm-hmm. So um, this tribute basically came to life at, at that time of uh, stress and pain and uh, fear of being here without my parents. Yesterday, it's the, the one year for my dad's passing. It was uh, exactly one year ago when my dad passed. Four months before he passed away, the recording was released. Mm. He was able to hear it, uh, enjoy it, and um, I can say with uh, a lot of pride and uh, happiness that he told me that it was his favorite uh, composition and his favorite CD of all, and that he was proud of me and that he loved what I did and he thanked me for that. And so I couldn't ask for anything more, you know, to have this memory of my dad listening to this, this music that connects us all. So you accomplished what you set out to do because of the impact that it had on your father. But then there's also the story about your mother, although she has uh, had uh, dementia and Parkinson's, but yet uh, in, in reading a little bit about this recording, it also had a, a story connected to it to where your mother wasn't really cognizant or aware of your father or or didn't recognize him so much near his death 
But you had a, uh, a session where you went into a room with her and you started playing some music and right. it brought about a memory of your father while you were playing that music and it, you played the Henry and Rachel track that's on there. We were in the living room. It was after my dad passed and when he passed away, he passed away in the, in, at home. She was in one room, he was in another, and then when it happened, of, of course, I was crying and weeping, and she called me from the other room, and she said, what? why are you crying? And I said, because dad is gone, and she said, who is dad? And so this is one aspect of it, but then a couple of weeks after, I'm, I'm there uh, sitting in the living room with her, and I'm playing a melody which... Um, she enjoys listening and she, when I finished, my mother was always, until today, she's still alive. Uh, she's, um, she, she's, uh, she's my biggest fan. She always mm. gave me so much support. I finished playing and she's like, ooh, you know, she's like wooing me and she's, it's beautiful. And I said, thank you. You know what it is? And she said, of course, it's Henry and Rachel. Oh. And it was like, what? You know, like a minute ago, you didn't remember who's Henry. And now because of the music, you know, the notes, the melody, you remember the name of the song. It was just incredible. So, and it's amazing how music does that for so many people that have had either memory loss or, or dementia or other issues to where things are foggy, but the clarity comes back when the music is heard and the memory comes back into the mind and joy and happiness are the result. Yeah, it's, it's amazing. It's like air and water. You know, you have air that we need to survive. You have water that we need to survive. And I think we need music to survive as well. You know, on, on your website, Ellie, there's a, uh, a, a passage in reference to Henry and Rachel and is that something that you wrote or yes yes i did yes it's just a very beautiful thing and if i may just quote a little bit of it uh, with your sure. indulgence uh, it says henry and rachel oxygen water my compass unconditional love the firm stem of a tree blue sky a caressing breeze joy i sing to you in the present a burning melody that will echo into the future eternally. Yes, <laughs> you, you, you bring tears to my eyes because it's amazing. I, I'm, I'm like, I'm, I'm so, it's unbelievable. You know, when I did that, they were both alive. My, my dad was alive and it was important to me to sing to him, you know, like I said, in the present, something that will echo into the future. 
when he's not here anymore. Mm-hmm. And and that's exactly what I did. By the way, um, if I may uh, say this um, um, song has a, a, a video clip that I really um, I, I really like, and the video clip is all about a mix of the music, obviously, and this poem. So, and in this video clip, you can see my parents with the words, with the lyrics, and uh, it's, it's something that uh, I would like your listeners to know about. And I think they should see this because it really is a beautiful video. And, and I think it, it expresses exactly what you meant in your composing this song. When did you write Henry and Rachel? Was that long before all of the changes in, in the life and the passing of your father? Was that uh, something written earlier? Not so much uh, earlier. It was right around the time when he, uh, he got sick and my mom uh, did too. But the thing is that uh, I always say that when I write, I never know, like, I write, I, I don't write lyrics, I write notes. And so when, when the composition is done, sometimes it will take me only until the recording day when I decide how I will call the, the composition or what is it, its name. Mm-hmm. But in, in this case, it was very obvious because it's melody for them. The album is also quite joyful. It's not morose. It, it is not just uh, very melancholy. It has life in it. Right, right. And thank you for saying that because I, I hope we didn't scare the audience until uh, now. But yes, of course, this is a, a vibrant and very, very, I don't know if the word is optimistic, but it is full of life. Mm-hmm. recording uh, this is how i feel and always been playing music with a lot of life energy this is the only way i can hear music or do it why why do music if it doesn't have so much life in it? so henry and rachel is a delightful tune it, it it's it, it does bring joy but you have two versions of it on the album it's right. it's the opening track uh, on Henry and Rachel, but it's also the closing act, uh, so to speak, uh, and it's a duo version. Tell me about that. Um, again, it's it's telling the story from the beginning and ending. You know, it is uh, envisioning how it is. You know, it it is telling the story of how it is now in the present when I compose the this, this song and how it may feel when the composition is after one of them or both of them are not present. And so the, uh, the second version, the duo version, is, uh, is much um, more darker, if I may say, or uh, melancholic or maybe romantic. When I hear this version, I can see both of them sitting on a bench, you know, and uh, with their backs to me and looking to the sunset, you know, like, like a movie, you know, you see the fade out and the titles are running mm-hmm. and it's, it's just the ending. Mm-hmm. 
So let's talk about some of the other tracks as well. All of the compositions are yours on the album, with the exception of one, which is the Jimmy Van Heusen one, uh, Like Someone in Love, which is a classic tune. One Uh, of the best compositions ever. How did you choose that one, by the way? What what drove you to a Jimmy Van Heusen tune? Uh, Was it a favorite of your parents, uh, that particular song? Not at all. It's just a standard that I've always loved to play. And I'll also give you a piece of uh, trivia on my second recording, which is called um, Emotionally Available. I've already recorded this song with a totally different arrangement. So it was just very interesting to me to come back to the same song and just reconstruct it and rearrange it and to hear how I would play it or how I play it 10 or 15 years after. This is one reason. The other reason is just the theme of this recording. The theme of this CD is is about love and everything that has to do with the feelings of uh, that we have to people that we love. So, like someone in love, it was obvious that this is a song that I need to record. A couple of other tunes. I, I, first of all, I love the uh, the name Gargamel and also the one Don Quixote. <laughs> Uh, tell yes. me about Gargamel first. Uh, wh- where or what's the basis for that one? Okay, so in Israel, and, and I'm sure it, you guys have it. This show in, in um, well, I know in in the United States, the Smurfs, the little blue Smurfs, mm-hmm. uh, is a show that I loved to watch when I was uh, a young kid. And there is a character, the bad guy in in Israel. We, we they called him Gargamel. He was the the, the bad guy who wanted to eat uh, the little Smurfs, and he had a cat. And I will always thought that this Gargamel has a suspicious re- resemblance to my father. <laughs> my father always looked to me like he was Gargamel. That's why I, even though he was a bad, you know, character, I loved Gargamel. He was one of my favorite characters on the Smurfs. 
See, what, what a great connection. And I love the yeah. story about that. Uh, and then also, speaking of your father and, and thoughts of him, there was some sort of connection maybe with your father and Don Quixote? Dad was always right, and uh, he was always fighting fights that he not necessarily could win. So that that's that's great, uh, and to have those connections and memories of him uh, are, are things that will always be with you, and 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 that's important. Some of the other things on this particular album uh, aren't necessarily directed entirely to Henry and Rachel, but also to your relationship, where uh, the songs like Longing, Noah, and The Wedding are reflective of your personal relationship with the woman in your life. That's right, but I, I have to say they are very much also connected to my parents because they met uh, and loved Noah from the first time they met her and for them to see and know that I proposed to Noah and that we are about to get married and obviously the plan was that my dad will be there but you know you can't get everything that you wish for in life this did not happen but still love to Noah and um, proposal was something that made both of them very very much happy so it is my personal life you're right but at the same time it's connected to to us three to Henry mm-hmm. and Rachel and Ellie obviously time. because you're all connected as family exactly one of those three songs the wedding i thought was uh, first of all uh, just an absolutely delightful tune but at the beginning of it uh, correct me if i'm wrong but my vision was with the syncopation uh, and the beat at the beginning of that uh, it's i could almost see you and noah doing a waltz on the dance floor at your wedding Exactly. This is the thought behind the, uh, the title. This is uh, about me envisioning us, Noah and I, and also our guests just dancing in a wedding.
I'm glad I nailed it. <laughs> yes, you did. <laughs> so, but I, I clearly had that vision. It, it was just a, a delight to listen to. And then I could see just the two of you on the dance floor. And then eventually, because later on the tempo picks up and so forth, that everyone else got out on the floor. And right. the rest of you had a celebration. Right. It was a celebration song. Another song, uh, and tell me the connection, uh, maybe uh, is it uh, just for yourself? Uh, and that's the, the track called Ziv. Uh, and Ziv uh, Demary is not only uh, a, uh, a manager for you in on the business side of things, but he's also a close friend. How did that end yes. up on uh, this particular album? Just like the other tunes, Ziv is probably the most important person, friend that I have always had since I've met him, since 18 years old. He was someone that always had my back, and uh, always treated me with kindness, love, respect, and everything that a friend can ask from another friend. that I, I want to, to tell you is that when I was around 19, my, my mother came to visit me for the first time in Boston. Like I said, I missed her so much. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, I introduced her to Zip, who was my new friend. I, I remember how he was falling in love with her very quickly and how she loved him very quickly. So again... It's all part of the family, and yes, in, in the future we became also associates and um, colleagues, and uh, Ziv has been um, managing me for the past uh, few years, and we have also a great working relationship, but um, he's mainly my best friend, and you know, I love him dearly. Tell our listeners uh, about the uh, personnel on this recording. Besides yourself on tenor and soprano sax, who else do you have sure. in the lineup? Sure. Uh, so this recording is um, the second recording with my new quartet, uh, which includes uh, the great Tom Moran on piano, who, by the way, won the um, first prize of the uh, Thelonious Monk Institute piano competition, which was held two or three years ago in Washington, D.C. On the bass, uh, the great Alon Nier, and on the drums, the great Eviatar Slivnik. It's, it, it's great music, and you chose well to surround yourself with a, a quality team of musicians. Certainly, thank you. So how can some of our listeners learn more about these musicians, your music, and this recording, Henry and Rachel? 
Well, the recording is um, is very easy to to get to uh, through Apple Music or Spotify or any other streaming platform. We of course have a Facebook and Instagram and beautiful new website that you can learn a lot about us and about what we do and when we play next and uh, if there is something missing you can also write us during one of these uh, platforms and we'll be happy to answer. Ellie DeGibri, you have created beautiful music about two beautiful people, Henry and Rachel, and I'm sure there's more to come with your music and all that you bring to us as listeners of this music that we know and love called jazz. And I'd like to thank you for being our guest on All That's Jazz. Thank you so much. I'm so happy with this recording as well, not only for the music, but for the uh, message or the, uh, the place that this music comes from, which is my admiration and endless love to my parents. Thanks for listening to this episode of All That's Jazz with saxophonist, composer, and band leader, Ellie DiGibri. We'd like to thank Ben Sedrin for the use of Mr. P's Shuffle as our theme song. And visit us again next time for another interesting conversation on All That's Jazz. If you liked today's episode, please leave us a five-star rating on the streaming service you use. All That's Jazz is available on every major streaming app, including Podbean, Apple Podcast, and Spotify, as well as Facebook and online at allthatsjazz.net.